I invite you this morning, if you would, to open up to 1 Corinthians. That's where we've been and, and where we will be for a while. We'll, like I said, we'll stop uh, for Christmas in a couple of weeks and do a few services around that, that message there. But today I just felt that we need to continue uh, here in 1 Corinthians where we've been. And I want to say this morning, as I said last week, this is going to be another bit of a difficult message uh, as far as the content is involved, the Bible talks about some areas sometimes that can get very uncomfortable for us. And so uh, what I'm going to be talking about today may be something that if you've got little ones, I think a lot of them went out, but if you've got little ones and you're not sure if you want them to hear about the topic of sexual purity, which is what I'm going to be preaching on this morning, you can certainly take them back to children's church or have those kind of conversations. I just didn't want to catch you off guard if that's a topic that uh, you and your family haven't discussed yet. But I encourage you to do that because, believe me, kids are learning younger and younger about what this means and they're learning it out there and you don't want out there telling your kids what to believe about this so uh, I hope that the Word of God as believers will shape your lives especially in this very important area so we're going to talk about sexual purity today uh, probably a two-part message uh, that I'll do on this because I want to focus in on something specific today and I'm going to read these few verses from this uh, paraphrase translation that I've been starting out with every week just because I think it gives you a real easy to, to understand application of what Paul is talking about. So here's what he says in these verses. Don't you know that those doing such things have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who live immoral lives, who are idol worshipers, adulterers, or homosexuals will have no share in the kingdom. Neither will thieves or greedy people drunkards, slanderers, or robbers. There was a time when some of you were just like that, but now your sins are washed away and you are set apart for God. And He has accepted you because of what the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God have done for you. Father, we come to you today thankful that no matter what our past looks like, that you are greater than that. You forgive us, you give us a new name, a new heart, and a new position. And so, Lord, I pray today that those of us that are saved can rejoice in what you've done for us and where you've brought us from and where you're bringing us to. But, Lord, I also want to pray for the ones here today that are lost or struggling with their sins, uh, that need those chains broken but haven't yet experienced that. Lord, I pray that today is the day of deliverance for them, that they would surrender their hearts as you convict them and draw them by your Spirit and through your Word, that they would surrender their lives to Christ and be saved and changed forever, Lord. So thank you for what you've already done in this service and what we believe you'll continue to do through the preaching of your word. Lord, help me to just decrease so that you would increase and may I get out of the way and let you get all the glory and I give you thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to talk today about, as we read those verses, you saw a lot of things listed and I'm certainly not picking out one sin to point out and hammer on to the exclusion of all the others. But I believe with all my heart we are living in a country right now, living in a season right now where there are some very specific issues that need to be addressed and too many pulpits are silent on these issues which is why the church has lost so much of its power, respect, and authority is because we refused to talk about difficult topics and we want to compromise and be friendly with the world. And while I never want to be intentionally uh, divisive, when we stand on this book, you know it, we're going to divide from some people. We're going to separate from the world. We talked about in Sunday school being holy. That means set apart. We can't be like the world and be set apart. And so I want to talk today, the difficult conversation that I want to have with you is about the, the, the issue of homosexuality 
and what we are facing in our country and in our churches. And yes, very well could be in this church. Just because we think that people hide it well doesn't mean that there aren't folks struggling with this. Don't know that, but I will certainly not assume that everyone in here is free from that battle. And so I wanted to show you some things starting out, share some things with you on a secular level about what we're looking at. So the CDC, don't know how much we can trust them at this point, but I would say this is somewhat accurate because of the topic. CDC numbers in 2021, so this is a few years back, say that 24.5%, now notice these numbers, and I want you to notice the age range specifically, 24.5% of 14 to 18-year-olds identify as bisexual, gay or lesbian, or other. That is up from 11% in 2015. That's a short window, guys. From 2015 at 11%, to just six years later, 24.5% now identifying in that way. What has changed so rapidly? What is causing this increase? I think we could talk about several issues and reasons why, and we probably will as we get into this a little bit. But there is definitely a rapid increase of this lifestyle, this ungodly lifestyle in our midst, specifically towards the younger generation. And I think, again, we can definitely pinpoint some reasons why it is the younger generation that is seemingly being bombarded with these things. Let me show you a chart that I found. This was based on uh, some studies and some research that was done. I know it's hard for you to see, but this is broken down by generations. It says at the top, Americans self-identified sexual orientations by generation. So the bottom would be called the traditionalist generation. That would be our oldest generation. The purple is lesbian, the black is gay, the pink is bisexual. Really small numbers there if you see it. The baby boomers, some increase, especially in the, in the gay identifying, but not a lot of change. Gen X, a little bit more. But then you go up to the top, millennials and Gen Z, and you see those lines explode. You see the difference, especially in the pink, the bisexual identifying as though they sexually relate to men and women, same sex and alternative sex. That's very telling, guys. It's very telling in a lot of reasons. And the drastic change between those two generations is why I feel like we need to address these things. Because it's only going to continue to rapidly increase and get worse if something doesn't change. Now listen, the biggest change is going to be when the Lord Jesus comes back. But I don't want to celebrate... My home going, knowing that there are people here lost and dead in their sins, because while we were here, we didn't do everything possible to warn them. And so while I'm excited to go, I have an obligation and an urgency about my spirit to tell people that this is not an alternative lifestyle. It is a sin. And it has to be called as such and addressed as such because that's what the Bible says it is. And so when we talk about this, we've been looking at this church, this messy church in Corinth, all sorts of problems. And last week we talked about the fact that there was a man in the congregation having an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law, and rather than the church grieving about it, they were so proud about who they were that they were ignoring the sin. And tolerance was their issue. And the problem today is... The same thing in the church and outside the church. We are being pushed to not only tolerate sin, 
but accept it and celebrate it. Because it will never stop with just tolerance. It was never about having equal rights. It was about celebrating this ungodly activity. And we are seeing that today in our culture. And many churches are caving into that pressure. I think I read just about every couple of months another denomination that has come out as affirming, inclusive, welcoming. I don't know how many times, I know a lot of you see it, there'll be people that will post on Facebook, on some of the groups, and they're looking for a church. And they'll use that language. I'm looking for a welcoming church. I'm looking for an inclusive church. Well, hey, I think K. Russo is one of the most welcoming churches there are, but not welcoming like that. Because at the, while, while, listen, anybody of any sexual orientation is welcome to come in here, they will not be celebrated any more than I would celebrate a straight relationship that is living outside the bounds of marriage. We're not going to celebrate your sin. We're just not going to. And, and, and the danger, the sad thing about it is there are so many churches that will. And while they can go down there and feel comfortable, celebrated, accepted, worthy, in the end, they're being clapped in, the, in eternity separated from God. And it's sad to think about. The blood is not only on their hands, it's on the church's hands for not telling them the truth. And one of the things we talked about last week was that scary statement that all of us make anymore because we see so much evil anymore. And we've all said this, nothing shocks me anymore. It should. No matter how many times we see it, but that's part of the enemy's plan, guys, is to expose us to so much evil and listen to the media and all these politicians and school boards tell us, this is normal, we have to accept it, we can't go by this antiquated book and these old-fashioned beliefs and things are changing and that might have worked for your generation but not anymore. And all this stuff is pushed on us to get us to cave in and believe that it's acceptable, that we should celebrate it and that everything is okay. And that desensitizes us. Daryl talked about in Sunday school the holiness of God. When we see a holy God who hates sin so much that he would send his own son and pour out his wrath on his son. Think about, we often think, well, Jesus went to the cross for our sins. Yes, he did. But Jesus also went to the cross to appease the wrath of God. God poured out his wrath. That's how serious God is about sin. And we should never celebrate that, and we should certainly never say, well, nothing shocks me anymore. We should be shocked at the wickedness of this world. We should be shocked that people would reject the Savior that can spare them because they love their sin that much. I'm not shocked because I understand that the deceived heart will do that, but I am shocked how evil our world is. And I'm shocked that so many people are rejecting the good news of Christ. It's shocking to me. And I hope it's shocking to you. I hope we never get comfortable with sin and rebellion around us. And so this, this homosexual lifestyle that's been redefined and repurposed to make it look uh, more tolerable to us, calling it the alternative lifestyle and all those things, let me ask you a question. Let's just think about that for a minute. When we use the term alternative lifestyle, alternative to what? Because, again, we're not attacking people this morning. The Bible tells us, and we tell you it all the time, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our agenda is not against the people in this relationship, in this view. It is the enemy behind this. It is the deception that they are under that we are looking at. And so alternative lifestyle, alternative to what? 
an alternative to the nuclear family, right? It's an alternative lifestyle to the traditional God makes one man and one woman and joins them together for a lifetime. So it's an attack against that idea of a nuclear family, but it's also an attack against God himself and his plan and the way that he has ordained the family to be. The enemy continues to attack the family from all sorts of angles. And one of the ways that he does that is by redefining what a family is. So many single-parent families today, and that's acceptable, right? People having children out of wedlock, and if they can't afford the child, they go and have an abortion. I mean, all of this is lying at the same root cause, and that is an enemy that hates us and wants to destroy us and wants to see as many people led into an eternity separated from God that he can. And the attack continues on the family, and we have got to stand up, and we have got to be biblical about what a family is, what sexuality is, the importance of marriage, that cohabitation is not normal. It's not how God intended it to be. If you love someone, listen, even the dating culture is anti-God in a lot of ways. There's nothing in the Bible that says what you do when you're young is you go into a public high school where there are seven, eight hundred different people of the opposite sex and like a buffet, you just try out a different boyfriend, different girlfriend every week until one sticks. That's not how this works. The Bible talks about you wait until you are ready for marriage and then you pursue someone to court so that you can join together for them. And I know that's just, I just got real unpopular. I didn't get a lot of amens, but that's biblical. It is. That's just the way it is. This idea of just going out. Because listen, what we are teaching our kids is try them out. Kick the tires. And if it doesn't work out, dump them and go find somebody else. The bad thing is that carries over into marriage. If they don't do what I want, when I want, how I want it, divorce and I'll find somebody else. And we are just teaching people that there is no lasting relationship and value and eternality in marriage. That's just what the truth is, guys. And so when I want us to think about, you know, what God wants out of these sexual relationships and how He is holy and we have got to try to keep these things pure in our life. It's a struggle. It is a struggle for us every day, but it's a struggle for the culture coming up around us, guys. And, and one of the things that we've got to understand is as the world tolerates, accepts it, celebrates it, as they try to redefine it, listen... No one will ever be saved if they don't think that they're a sinner. And when God and when the world can convince you that that lifestyle is just another option, that abortion is just a choice, when, when the ladies try to talk to these women and point them to the scriptures, they get so upset because they don't see it as wrong. They see it as their bodily autonomy to make a personal decision that no one else has any bearing or authority to say anything about. And that's the same thing with the homosexual crowd. They have so much been affirmed in so many ways that anyone that calls this sin is now a bigot. We're homophobic. We are just hateful and evil people, right? And I mean, it's getting to a point and it's going to get to a point where these types of messages will get us in trouble. They will. They'll get me in trouble. There's already been people sent to jail for street preaching on these things. In this country, in Arizona, just last year it happened. And so they are silencing biblical... And how do they do that? Because they pass laws under the guise of, 
hate speech. If I open up this book and read a verse of Scripture, like we will here in just a minute, I am guilty of hate speech. That's how they get around it. So quoting the Bible on these types of topics will get you arrested. Be aware and understand that that is what we're facing in this culture. But if all it takes for us is a little bit of time to be spent in jail to silence us, we don't really believe too much about what we say about our God. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to lose my home. I don't want to be separated from my family. But I want to honor God and what he's called me to do. So I've got to make a choice. And so do you. It's, it's uncomfortable and it's difficult, but we've got to make a stand against these things. And so as we, as we look at our text today, I want, you to, I want you to see what Paul says here. And I want to try to be biblical about this topic. Verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, adulterers, I'm reading from the New King James here, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Now, I want you to see I've got that same verse up there in a couple of different translations. This one, I believe, is the King James, and it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, uh, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. And then one more translation. This is the New American Standard. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, uh, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, or homosexuals. So why did I bring up those different translations? Because you guys are going to have to defend your faith at some point. If you get out there and share the gospel with people, they're going to come back at you. Maybe you've already experienced that with your friends and family. They're not just going to listen quietly as you express your opinion and not push back on you and so we need to understand the, the tactics of the enemy and we need to understand how to answer those things biblically and one of the things that you are going to see is that they are going to challenge the language of the Bible not only are they going to challenge the inspiration and infallibility but they're going to they're going to challenge even the wording and the translation of the Bible okay so I think we need to look at these words and just make sure that we understand what we're dealing with. So in all those translations, we saw the word unrighteous. Unrighteous person is someone that violates the laws of God, i.e. a sinner. Sin means to miss the mark. He says specifically, so here is the claim, unrighteousness or unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God. How many doors does that shut today for religious people in churches that celebrate ungodly lifestyle based on the Word of God. Yes, they're celebrated and can hold on to their religious feelings, but they're shut out from the kingdom of God. That's scary to me. It's scary to me to think that there are pastors that stand in the church and say that this is okay when the Word of God is clear that it's not. The blood is on their hands, folks. This unrighteous behavior... Then it uses some other terms here. Fornicator. Obviously, that can be someone, it means someone that has unlawful sexual intercourse. Someone straight or gay that is having sex outside of the bounds of marriage is a fornicator. That term is used when we cheat on, so to speak, cheat on God, when we have other gods. The Bible uses that as spiritual language. 
fornication against God, adulterers, unfaithful to God or your spouse. And then the last word I want you to really see is the word homosexual because that is where you are going to see a lot of pushback. You may have heard people say this. Anybody heard of a guy named Matthew Vines? Came out a few years ago, did a lot of podcasts and different things. Matthew Vines didn't start this thought. It's been around for decades, but he kind of brought it to the forefront. And the, the, the thought is this. Until 1957, the word homosexual was not found in any English Bible translation. That's true. That is true. We, we, we're not going to change history or deny that. The word homosexual, the English word, was not found in any English Bible. My Bible, the New King James, uses the word sodomite, which, to be politically correct, a lot of translations have gotten away from that. But that is a valid translation. The King James used a little bit different language as well. But why do I bring that up? I want you to see this. It's important. Did, did somebody just slip that in and have an agenda against homosexuality and there was nothing wrong with it and it's just, you know, a recent cultural thing? No, not at all. I want you to understand this without getting too deep and confusing you. The word was translated as such, but the Apostle Paul who wrote that letter used two words from the Old Testament to make that word. And even though it was translated differently in English, the meaning has never changed. So let me take you on a journey back to the times of Paul and Jesus. They didn't have Bibles like we do. There was no New Testament. It was still being written, right? But they had the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. By that time, nobody, hardly no one spoke Hebrew. It was a lost language. So they translated the Hebrew Scriptures into the language of the day, which was Greek. That Greek copy of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, you can still get online today and look at copies of it, read it today if you want to. And in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, there are several scriptures that talk about homosexuality. I'm going to give you just two of them. Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. God says it is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman... Both of them have committed an abomination. Old Testament law says they shall surely be put to death. The blo their blood shall be on them. So where do we get this word homosexual from? How did it find its way into our Bibles? Why wasn't it translated that way from the beginning? Because the word which seemingly Paul created was from two Hebrew words that we see in those texts and many other texts, which would have been the Septuagint, which would have been Paul's Bible that he used at the time. There's two words there, arson, which means man, and koites, which means bed. So the word together means a male bed. Two men, if, if you've ever heard someone use this term, I went to bed with them. You know what was going on, Right? And so that's the idea. Paul put those two words, arson coites is the word, together to mean homosexual. Whether it's translated sodomites or something different in another translation does not change the intention drawn out from the Old Testament and now into the New Testament as Paul writes. And so we, we go through that and you say, well, well, wait a minute now. You're quoting the Old Testament because I'm sure you guys have heard this. I've heard it many times. Well, you... Christians are, you just cherry pick the Bible. You, have you heard that before? You just pick certain verses, take certain things out of there that you like and leave out other stuff. 
and especially when you quote the Old Testament, they'll say, well, okay, you're talking about homosexuality, but in that same section there, I think it was Melissa was talking about reading through Leviticus, so in that same section, Pastor, it says you shouldn't eat shellfish, and you shouldn't wear mixed fabrics in your garments. You Christians don't have a problem going to Red Lobster and dining out and wearing your cotton polyester blend shirts, but you're going to get on homosexuals. You guys are hypocrites. Have you heard that? Have you been accused of that? That is because people don't have an understanding of the law and how it was divided up into the culture of the time. In the Old Testament, guys, the law was given not to the Gentiles, not us. It was given to the nation of Israel, to the Jews. God gave the law not just for moral issues. He gave the law to regulate how they worship. You ever read through there at all the washings and the cleansings and the sacrifices and the animals and the times of year? That has nothing to do with morality. That was to dictate how they worship. Those were ceremonial laws on how they ought to worship. What about the legal things? You put somebody to death for this. You cast them outside of the tribe for that. Those are judicial things. You see, you can't just read the law and group it all under one thing. There are moral laws, ceremonial laws, and judicial laws. The moral laws have continued to carry on through because God's standard for morality does not change. But we are not a theocracy. We are not dictated by the, the ceremonial and the judicial laws of Israel. Christ fulfilled those things. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of... Why don't we still sacrifice lambs? Why aren't we going to celebrate Hanukkah, Passover and all those things? Because Christ was the Passover lamb. He fulfilled it for us. Those things are obsolete. That's why we don't worry about if we eat pork or shellfish or anything else. He told Peter, arise Peter, kill and eat what I've made clean. Let no man call unclean. We're not under those laws. We're not under the law, period. But the moral standard that God has given has never changed. Long before the law was written in Genesis 1.27, he said, I'll make them male and female. That transcends the law. That's been God's standard since the time of creation. We can throw the law, if you want to throw the law out the window, it's still God's standard for a man and a woman to be united together until death do us part. That's the standard that God has set. And so the argument that, well, we cherry pick is just a blatant misunderstanding of what God dictates in His law. It just is in the relationship of us as believers to the law. But I want us to go on and look at some more scriptures here today. I want us to see what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. He says to the young pastor there who's pastoring the church in Ephesus, he says, knowing this, here we go, the law is not made for a righteous person. How do we become righteous? By being in Christ. It's not that we keep the law and therefore we are good people. It's because Jesus kept the law for us and gives us his righteousness. Now, yes, he changes us. Yes, we have a way to live as holy people. But we are righteous because of Christ, not by our actions. He says, knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate. If you're here today and you're lost, you are under the crushing weight of the law. You are condemned by every sin that you have committed because it is squarely on your shoulders. Christ has not cleansed you. Christ has not broken those chains for you. Christ has not washed you clean. You are carrying around 
all of the sin that you've ever committed and the law declares you guilty. That is the difference. So he tells Timothy, this law is not for the righteous, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, here we go, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. He's saying anything that you are living in open rebellion towards God with is condemning you without Christ. The language, there's no wiggle room, guys. So many people today want to say, well, I can live this way and I still love Jesus. I think, Tiffany, you asked that question on Wednesday night. You and I had that conversation. What about well-meaning people that say they love Jesus and yet partake in these things? There's no wiggle room here. He said the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he lists those sins. I know that makes people very uncomfortable. You may have family and friends living those lifestyles. And it is difficult for you to think about. And maybe they claim to love Jesus. And maybe even the way that they live their life is better than some Christians live their life. That's a shame to us, but it happens, right? But there's no getting around what the Word of God says here. Now listen, I believe that when God saves us, and you know this from experience, we all still struggle with sin. It doesn't just fall off to where we never have temptation, we never have urges, we never have times where we even give in. And so if someone comes to Christ as a homosexual and is saved and has moments where they struggle with those things, I don't think we just jump in and say, well, obviously they're lost because then we need to do that to ourselves. Every time we fall back into sin, we've got to ask ourselves the same question. Am I lost every time I sin? No. No, you're not. But there has to be a change. There has to be a difference. The, the, the pattern of your life has got to be changing. There's got to be a battle going on. You can't say, I, I accept and love the things that God hates, but I also love God. That won't work. You've got to choose this day who you're going to serve. You've got to pick a side and go with it. You're going to follow the Lord Jesus or you're going to follow your sin, but you can't have both. You may stumble over on this side sometimes, but you're going to, you're going to reside over here with the Lord. You're going to reside on His side. And so we come into this last verse I want to show you today, and that's from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Paul has a lot to say in the book of Romans about this. And again, it's uncomfortable. But it's the Word of God. And we can't just set aside things that are difficult. And so I want us to see this. He says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18. Listen to this. The wrath of God. The same wrath that He poured out on His Son for us. The same wrath that Jesus took so that you wouldn't have to. But if you continue and persist in your sin, He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that the, the creation points to a creator. They are without excuse because just looking at nature, it's evident that there is a God. But he says the real issue to this thing is a suppression of the truth. If you've ever went to the beach or ever been in a swimming pool and you got one of those big beach balls and you try to hold that thing under the water, you ever done that? What does it want to do? It wants to pop out of there, doesn't it? That's the same idea of that word suppress. 
you're holding it down and it wants to rise to the surface and you're trying your best to keep it down. The unrighteous, who we were at one time, don't ever forget who you were before Jesus found you. If, if you struggle with pride and self-righteousness, it's good sometimes to remember where you were when God found you so that you don't get too big of a head. But we would hold down the truth. We loved our sin, just like they do. We wanted to be justified in our sin, just like they do. Maybe we even want to be celebrated in our sin, just like they do. And so they hold down the truth. It's discouraging when you try to tell people out Jesus and they mock and ridicule and reject you and push you away. But it's a suppression of the truth in their life. And we face that every day, church. But what we can't do is close our mouths and not speak. No matter how often they laugh and scoff and get angry, we have still got to love them enough to share the truth. Because the moment they silence us, the enemy continues to advance this agenda and another generation continues to fall farther and farther away from God. My heart grieves for George and Melody. My heart grieves for anybody that works with youth today. Because these youth are facing things that I can't even fathom. You guys go through things that no young person should have to go through. You're taught about things that you have no reason to learn about. And you can't get away from them. I mean, you can, but it's very difficult to get away from them. Because they're everywhere. They're in the world. They're in the school. They're on your phone. They're on the television. You know, no matter how much you try to shut yourself away from those things, they find you. And so rather than try to hide from them, I think we've got to be so rooted in the truth that when those attacks come, we recognize it and we have something greater. And that's why I implore, and that's why they implore parents and grandparents to get serious about your children's walk. Don't give... Listen, I'm going to get uncomfortable or uh, unpopular again. George, George is staying with me on this one. You're not your kid's friend. God did not give you children because they needed another set of buddies. They got plenty of buddies, and most of them are going to take them in the wrong direction. They got one mom and one dad, and your job is to be unpopular, but your job is to love them enough to make them do the truth. It just is. And we have got to say, you know what, this is non-negotiable. We're getting up on Sunday. We're getting up on Wednesday. You can come to church and be miserable. You can pout and moan and gripe, but you're going to sit there, and you're going to like it. And after a while, I can, I can tell you, as they start to build relationships and friendships, it's just like anything else. People want to belong to something. And when you start to belong to this group here, it won't be near as bad as you thought it was. Because hopefully if you get saved, then you'll be around like-minded people and you'll have same interests. The reason why the world is so much fun is if you're lost, that's where everybody like you is. You don't want to come in here because you're the odd man out, right? You stand out, or at least you feel like you do. Because what I'm talking about this morning, if you're lost, is uncomfortable. And you say, I disagree with you, Pastor, right? So that's the last thing you want to talk about is things that you think are okay. But we have got to expose our kids to the truth. And this church wants to help you with that. We can't replace you. We're not supposed to. The church does not replace the family, but we want to come alongside of you and help. But we can't help if, if you're not here and they're not there. And so we want to continue to encourage you to take this thing serious. You've got a few short years with your kids and they're gone. And it'll be too late once they're gone to try to win them back. And so Paul says that this suppression of the truth, and then this is what's scary as this goes on, as, as they suppress this truth long enough, 
That's why I tell you every week during the invitation, if God is dealing with you, today is the day of salvation. Because the longer you wait, the more times you turn him away, the harder that your heart gets. And the easier it is to not hear him anymore. Until it may be a time when you don't hear him anymore. God's not obligated to keep asking you every week if you want to get saved. He's not. He doesn't have to show up every week and every day and say, Hey, it's me again, just checking to see if he's ready today. Like if he offers you salvation one time and you turn it down, he's done more than you deserved. That's it. So when he knocks, I would answer the door. And I tell you that every week. The, that's one thing I can say with a clear conscience is the blood is not on my hands. You didn't come here for any amount of time and didn't be able to pre- plead ignorance that you didn't know what you were supposed to do. I try to tell you every week, you better turn from your sins and trust Christ because there is a day of judgment. You think that little baby came and laid in that manger and grew up and went through all that suffering and all that shame that he went through and all that guilt to go to a cross and rise again three days later just because he wanted to? He came for a purpose. He came for you. He came to save you. That's why we're celebrating Christmas. It's not about all the presents and all the Christmas carols and all that stuff. It's about him. All of this is about him. Every single bit of it. We celebrate him and we celebrate what he has done for us the world if they will receive him but look at these verses 26 and 27 of Romans 1 for this reason speaking about these folks that continue to push the truth down he gave them up boy that's scary language never want God to give you up take his hand off of you he gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and they were consumed with passion for one another Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You see that language three times in this chapter, 24, 26, and 28. God gave them up. God gave them over. God gave them up. And it's interesting, when you look at those three verses, it speaks of the body, the heart, and the mind. In all these places, slowly they are giving themselves over to unrighteousness in the way that they think, in the way that they act, and ultimately in the way that they believe in their hearts. God gives them over as they continue to reject the truth. My friends, if you're here today and you realize that you're lost and you know that you need Christ, no more excuses and no more games. Today is the day where you have got to make a decision. What will you do with Jesus? Do you love your sin more than you love Him? If you say, I want Jesus more than anything in my life, and act on that today. Receive Him. You say, how do I do that? You do it by faith. He is who He says He is. He's done what He said He did. He's alive today and seated at the right hand of the Father and He is coming back for His church. That is the Jesus that you need. And you come to Him by faith simply saying, I believe what the preacher preached today. I believe what the Word says and I believe that you are the only one that can save me and I'm going to rest my hope on you. That's it. That's what you do. You don't make promises that you won't keep. You don't sign a contract that he does his part and you do your part. You surrender your life to Jesus and say, if I have any hope in heaven, it's because of you. And I'm going to trust you. That's it. That is it. And so I want you to see this last verse, and we're done. Such were some of you. Paul is dealing with, listen, homosexuality didn't just start in the last 20 years in America. It was a mess back then, too. 
The Greeks were just as wicked as you can imagine some of the things they did. The Romans were just as wicked, if not worse, than we were. Homosexuality was rampant. Out of 13 Caesars, 11 of them were homosexuals. Nero took a young boy. I don't want to get too technical, but I'll just be honest with you. This is history. Nero took a young boy, castrated him, married him, brought him home, and used him as a woman. That's the reality of the wickedness of some of these Caesars that ran the government. You think our government's corrupt? And it is. It's no different than the government back then because people are people. Sinners are sinners. It's going to be that way, guys. We've got to recognize that us in this room were sinners. You say, well, I never did anything like that. No, but you did enough to deserve hell. And Jesus saved you and spared you. And so at the end of the day, he says in verse 11, some of you were like this, but you were washed, not baptized, washed by the blood of Christ. You believed and that blood cleansed you. He says that you were sanctified, you were set apart, you were different, you were in the world. He took you out of the world and placed you in his kingdom. He lives inside of you now, and you are different. There has been a change in you. He also says that you were justified. That's a legal term. You were standing before God and you were guilty. Because remember, we read that verse, the law says you are guilty. But when Christ took your punishment and he fulfilled the law, God looked at you and justified means God said not guilty. He said you are not guilty of any sin. You say, I've sinned a bunch. I've sinned a bunch after I've gotten saved. How can I be not guilty? Because the blood has washed you clean of all your sins, past, present, and future. That's no excuse to sin. You ought to fall on your face and say, God, help me to not sin. Help me to not love the things that you died for. But he washed us clean. He sanctified us. He has justified us in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. I want to read a story to you as I close. This is not real long, but I want you, I want you to picture this scene in your mind. This is a story from John MacArthur dealing with a homosexual that he had communication with. And I want you to see the hope that there is. No one is too far gone. No matter what you've done, even if you're in here today and you say, if I'm honest with you, Pastor, I'm struggling with homosexual thoughts. Or maybe I am a homosexual, and that's why I don't want to come to church. That's why I'm scared to death, because if I ever said that in a church, what would they do to me? We'd love you, and we would try to help you see Jesus loves you more than we do. And he can do this for you. Let me read this. Some months ago, this story is about 10 years old. Some months ago, I was standing in my office, and I was looking at the little spindle that contains the messages that come in by phone, and I noticed one that said, a young man has called and asked that you come to the hospital to see him. He is dying. And I, so MacArthur says, I decided to go immediately, and I went down to the Riverside Drive to the small hospital located there and went in the door and asked the person at the desk what room he was in. And I walked down the hall and turned in the room and took a look at this man in bed, a man I didn't know, but I could take one look at him and see that he was dying of AIDS. He was just about skin and bones, gaunt, with hollow eyes and sunken cheeks, almost lifeless. And I saw him, my attention moved to another man who was lying kind of casually across a small sofa that was in the hospital room. And I said to him, my name is John MacArthur, at which point this man hastily exited the room and said, I'll leave you two alone. I walked over to the bedside knowing what I was about to hear. I took hold of his hand and he said to me, I'm dying. I have not long to live. I have AIDS and cancer is eating my body at a rapid rate. And then he burst into tears and said, but I am afraid to die because I know I'm going to hell. 
He said, I've lived a sinful, sordid, homosexual life for, I think, 26 years. And he went on to tell me, he said, I said, tell me about yourself. And he told me about a Christian mother and a Christian father. He told me about being raised in a Christian home. He told me about attending two years of Bible college. He told me about all the rebellion in his heart and the beginnings of that homosexual sin and how eventually it blew him right out of the Bible college into 26 years of the most gross kind of living in the mainstream of the rabid homosexual community. He said, now I'm dying and I know that I'm going to hell. MacArthur said, tell me about your homosexuality. Tell me about it. Tell me how you view it. Tell me what you think of it. And as he sobbed and he cried, he said, it is sin. I've always known it's sin. I hate it. God hates it. And it damns men. And he said it over and over about it. I suppose about a half dozen ways, just as cathartic to his own soul. The confession felt good. And I said, David, do you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? The saving gospel of Christ? And he said, yes. I said to him, tell me the gospel. And he reiterated to me unhesitatingly how Christ was God incarnate, born and died, rose again for our salvation, and the efficacy of his death on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And he knew it well. And he understood that salvation was by grace through faith, and only God could save him out of his own mercy, the one who was willing to believe and was eager to turn from his sin. And I said, are you willing to turn from your sin, to repent, to cry out for God and ask him for salvation? And he said, yes. Yes, yes. So I said, well, salvation is a gift that only God can give. Let me pray for you and ask God to give it to you. And so I began to pour out my heart. And as I was holding his hand praying, he was squeezing my hand tightly, the emotion of his heart coming out through the hand. And I pleaded with the Lord to be gracious and save him and to forgive him all this life of horrendous iniquity and deliver him. And I prayed for quite a long time, after which he burst into prayer, a sobbing kind of prayer, and confessed his sin again, probably a half dozen times to the Lord. And he pleaded with the Lord to be merciful and to forgive him for the way in which he had blasphemed his name and rejected the gospel and lived in sin. This man, by all intents and purposes, is an absolutely inveterate homosexual who has sinned in ways that are beyond description. And he's crying out for mercy. After his prayer was over, there was a peace and a calm that came over his heart. And as he opened his eyes and kind of wiped away his tears, a smile broke across his face. And he was looking at the wall, and he kept staring at the wall with a little smile on his face. And I said, what are you looking at? I'm looking at the calendar because I want to remember the day of my new beginning. And then he went on to reiterate that he sensed that God had saved him that he was accepted by faith and the fact that he had trusted God, God would save him in his mercy. And he believed in that moment and he was converted. I think it was in a day or so from then that Lance Quinn, one of the deacons, took a copy of the gospel according to Jesus and made sure that his faith was real. And within five days from the day that I had prayed with him, he was gone, dead. But I said to him that day by the bed, I said, now that you've become a Christian, What's going to be different? He said, my whole life is going to be different. He said, the first thing is my whole life is filled with people who live in a homosexual world. The fellow who was in here when you came in is my lover. My male nurse here is a homosexual. And the AIDS Association has sent me an AIDS worker to be with me in these days. He's also a homosexual. Everyone in my life is a homosexual. 
And he said, now I have the responsibility to tell them all of the sin they're engaged in and call them all to come to Christ. God gave him five days to do that, and he did, and then he was gone. What a testimony of what God can do for anyone if you're willing to trust him. The difference in that story was this man's response. He didn't justify it. He didn't excuse it. He cried out to God for help. And I know we've spoken on this topic specifically today, but that's true for you today of any sin. If you're here today and you're lost, the same response is what you need that saved this man. Recognize you're lost. Recognize your sin separates you from God and call on his name. We're all going to celebrate in a few weeks the gifts that are under the Christmas tree, but today you can have the best gift that was ever given. You can have the greatest gift that has ever been offered, greater than any material thing there is on earth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation he gives. And so we're going to sing a song of invitation. I'm going to have Phyllis and the ladies are going to come. And I'm going to ask you to do something really hard today. I want you to think about the sin in your life that you're struggling with. Maybe it is homosexuality. Maybe it's some other sexual sin. Maybe it has nothing to do with sexual sins. But I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to come publicly and confess Christ and confess your sin. Because one of the most freeing things that can happen, when Jesus came, didn't he say, I am the light of the world? As long as we can hide our sin and think that nobody else knows about it and tuck it away in the dark corners and recesses of our life, it will continue to hold you in bondage. One of the worst things that the enemy wants you to do is let go of your fear and confess what you're dealing with. Because once you've done that, the power of that deception is broken. What has he got against you? You just got up and told the whole world, hey, I'm a homosexual, but I'm coming today because I need Jesus. And his power is broken, your sin is forgiven, and there is a freedom that you will never experience until you get brutally honest about your sin. He said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. At some point, you have got to make your profession public. Why not today? If you've come in here today and you're lost, my friend, you don't have to walk out that door lost anymore. Your name can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You can be covered by the blood, and you can be changed forever. And you will have a room full of people that love you and will walk with you through your times of need. I can promise you that. But the choice is up to you. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And what you do is between you and the Lord. But I sure hope if he's calling today, you'll come. Father, we thank you this morning for the gospel that still saves, Lord. I know that there are people today that are struggling with all sorts of sexual sin, pornography, adultery, homosexuality, and they may very well be many in this room. I pray that right now, your voice is louder than the enemy, that your power breaks the bonds and the fears and the excuses, that they would step out in faith and say no more. The enemy will not deceive me, not lie to me, not hold me back. Another moment. I've decided to follow Jesus, and I'm taking his hand, and I'm receiving his salvation, and I'm going to trust him with my life. I pray today, Lord, that you would place that in someone's heart and that they would walk this aisle for you. In Jesus' name, amen.
as we stand and as we sing.